Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Hello and welcome back to Radio KBPV. This is Ranger Gord. Welcome back uh, to the podcast. I know we've been a little bit dim through the winter, but uh, I have been busy doing some website uh, work on on uh, KootenayBrown.ca. And if you want to see what that looks like, the, the website itself doesn't look any different, but there's a couple of things that have been under construction since we launched that a few years ago. And we haven't had a time to get around to it. And guess what? <laughs> COVID gave us a lot of time. Or gave me a lot of time anyway. Um, now the museum itself is still uh, locked down due to the, uh, the COVID restrictions. Uh, we don't have any idea just yet when we're going to be reopening. But we do have a mandate to still try to give you as much information as possible. So... We have uh, taken a couple of pages out of our uh, website. And if you find those, you can just go to the main page, kootenaybrown.ca, and you'll see two buttons. One will say, read a story from southwestern Alberta's history. And the other one will say, images from KBC archives. And uh, that's a growing thing. Um, Some of it has had a little bit of work more than others. But we're quickly putting content in there. And uh, it, it looks pretty impressive so far. So if you head to those pages, and by the way, it's all optimized for your phone or your um, any other device that you want, or a laptop or uh, mainframe. So you can read any one of Farley's stories. And I've had a few of myself, my own in there as well from time to time. And basically, it's concentrated into roughly a little under 20 categories for each page. Uh, So you can just kind of find those categories in the middle, click on there. And um, yeah, you can either read a story or see some of our archival images. So in that vein, as I've been looking for content, I found an article that I wrote many, many years ago for a long-defunct history magazine called Canadian West. It was out of Langley, B.C. And it regards a figure that's uh, very prominent in Western Canadian history, but not a household name. But he's a Pincher Creeker. So I thought that we would want to hear about one of the early Northwest Mounted policemen who later became one of uh, 
Alberta's very first members of parliament and was the member of parliament for the Pincher Creek and McLeod area and an early stockman and rancher and businessman in your area. So this is going to be the story of Honest John Heron, Policeman, Plainsman and Politician by Gord Tolton. And that's me. John Heron Jr. was born on November 15, 1853 in Ashton in what was known as Upper Canada, what we know now today as Ontario. Uh, Ashton is a village 25 miles west of Ottawa in Carleton County, and John was the third son in a family of 12. John Heron the Elder was a farmer who had come to Canada from Ireland when he was 21, a devout Presbyterian and a member of the Orange Society. Now, young John Heron had very little formal education, and but attended public schools in Ashton. At the age of 12, he went to work in the logging camps of Ontario and Quebec, and at 16 was taken to apprentice with a local skilled artisan, as was the custom of the era. For the next five years, he learned and practiced the trade of blacksmithing. In 1873, the Northwest Mounted Police was formed under an order in council of the Government of Canada and instructed march, to march west to establish Canadian authority in the Northwest Territories and to maintain law and order in the new possessions. In June of 1874, the NWMP left Fort Dufferin in Manitoba to cross the prairies on their much-heralded Great March to restore order on the Southern Plains and drive the American whiskey traders out of business. However, Sub-Constable John Heron did not participate in that march. In fact, he did not arrive at Fort Garry, Manitoba until the fall of 1874, probably in December. His service records show his, him as having enrolled in the new force on November 24, 1874 as a farrier, Regimental Number 378 Old Series. Several accounts like to state that John Heron was one of the Mounties who built Fort McLeod, but this is hardly possible since his record and his regimental record number clearly provide evidence that he was not taken onto the force until late November of 1874, far too late to have gone west with the force. In truth, while Fort McLeod was being constructed and the police were establishing their beachhead in their war on the whiskey trade, Heron and his fellow troops were to cool their heels in Manitoba. The new recruits spent the summer, winter, of 1874 and 1875 at Fort Dufferin, the headquarters of the Boundary Commission, right on the Manitoba-North Dakota border, and the point where their compatriots had embarked on their western march from in the previous summer. Soon after their arrival in Manitoba, the fresh troops were awarded, ordered to march to Swan River, a Hudson's Bay fort being converted to an NWMP outpost. The officer in command was paymaster Edward Dalrymple Clark, a nephew of Sir John A. Macdonald. On November 1st, the column was met by Commissioner George Arthur French and the men of D Troop en route back to Dufferin, and the Clark column was ordered by French to return to Dufferin as well. Young Heron spent the remainder of the winter in Manitoba. In the spring of 1875, Constable Heron was detailed to patrol duty in the town of Winnipeg. Not long after, the police contingent was again ordered to the Swan River barracks with Commissioner French himself in charge. 
While on the trail, the newly established force received the news that it was to be visited by the commanding officer of the Canadian militia, Major General Edward Selby Smythe, as he made an inspection tour of his western outposts. On behalf of the government, Selby Smythe was to report on the progress of the NWMP and make recommendations on the operations and duties of the force. He was also constructed he was also instructed to confer and s with and seek cooperation of the United States military officials on the Missouri River. Selby Smythe's party reached Winnipeg by steamer from Minnesota. The party, consisting of Canadian militia officers and several overloaded livery wagons, embarked on the Swan River Trail and overtook the police column at the Shoal Lake Police Detachment. That today is on the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border. Their special escort was provided to accompany General Smythe. The general asked for a special escort for the inspection tour and Heron was one of several policemen selected to be in that escort. Fifty men with Commissioner French accompanied the general and his entourage as the inspection tour was conducted that July. At the outset, the police strongly recommended that Smythe dispense with the heavy baggage and the impractical livery wagons. The advice was heeded and the impractical transport was ordered back to Winnipeg to resort their load. The reason for the unusually strong escort alluded to rumors of trouble coming from the Métis settlements. An event of the tour would in coming years prove to be a denouement to the 1885 Northwest Rebellion. It was reported by Lawrence Clark, a Hudson's Bay trader on the South Saskatchewan, that the Métis at St. Laurent settlement had set up some form of independent government. Upon investigation, it was found that the St. Laurent government was merely an organization of local government with the famed hunter Gabriel Dumont at its head. Clark's letters had blown the situation completely out of proportion. It wouldn't be the first time. The Selby Smythe tour was given a warm welcome and Dumont was warned not to attempt any further regional control. But in 10 years time, Lawrence Clark and Gabriel Dumont would butt heads again. Métis self-government again the issue, but this time it would involve Louis Riel and result in armed conflict. The Smythe tour continued on to Fort Carleton, Fort Edmonton and Fort Saskatchewan and then proceeded south to cross the Red Deer River at a place called the Wolf Trail. Near here, the tour met up with the escort of Assistant Commissioner James F. McLeod, Inspector Ephraim Brisbois, and Chief Scout Jerry Potts, who had been ordered north in the event of trouble with the St. Laurent Métis. While en route, Brisbois' brigade ran into a terrible difficulty fording the Bow River and found themselves converting their wagons into a crude form of ferry. Amidst much difficulty, the crossing was made and Brisbois continued onward to the Red Deer. When Brisbois and F Troop met up with Selby Smythe's group, Brisbois had been under orders to establish a new police post, but he did not know exactly where he was supposed to do that. Smythe ordered him to return south and to make provisions for the building of the new fort on the Bull River at the spot where F Troop had made their perilous crossing. The recrossing of the Bull would become as known as the historic incident that was the founding of the post 
that would later be known briefly as Fort Brisbois, and those details are later in this story, and later better known as Fort Calgary. At the Blackfoot crossing of the Bow, Selby Smythe's party met the Blackfoot chief Crowfoot and received the chief's warm praises of the mounted police. By now, young Heron was becoming steeped in the history of the force and was an eyewitness to what would become very historic events. Heron continued with the general's party to Fort McLeod and thenceward into the United States to Fort Shaw on the Sun River, west of modern Great Falls in Montana Territory. Here, Selby Smythe met and conferred with the American commander, Colonel John Gibbon, a Civil War officer who in less than a year would be ordered to campaign against the Lakota Sioux and would find himself as a commander of a column that would arrive too late to participate in the Battle of the Little Bighorn. From Fort Shaw, the party returned to Fort McLeod. Smythe would then outfit a pack train of 32 horses and climb the South Kootenai Pass to Wild Horse Creek in British Columbia. By now, Constable Heron was only one of two NWMP escorts left in the tour. Twelve miles south of Wild Horse Creek at Joseph's Prairie, the, most of the escorts were released, but Heron was retained. They then turned into Washington Territory and ended up at Fort Walla Walla. Here General Smythe is said to have addressed his police escort with, Heron, I don't think we'll need your services any longer. I am going to take the steamboat as it is too late in the year for me to return by the Kootenai Pass. I'll give you your pay. John Heron was released from the tour and according to legend was given $300 in gold for his wages and return expenses. As Selby Smythe continued on to the Pacific Coast, he may have had John Heron in mind when in his report he penned, Too much value cannot be attached to the Northwest Mounted Police. Too much attention cannot be paid to their efficiency. As for Heron, he boarded the Blue Mountain stage and was bound for a 700-mile trip to Kelton, Utah on the Southern Pacific Railway and paid $90 for the trip. He then boarded a train to Salt Lake City. Upon arrival, he purchased a saddle horse, one pack horse, and fulfilled his orders to make the long, harrowing return trip to Fort Calgary alone. Heron's trip back was considered to be a dangerous one, as he was traveling alone at the height of the Great Lakota Wars. The fact that he came back at all must say something about his character. Mounted policemen did not make a lot of money and desertion rates were high. Heron said years later, when General Selby Smythe gave me $300 in gold pieces, I thought I would never see a poor day again. That much gold and free reign on foreign soil in wild and woolly boom towns like the ones he traveled through would be a sore temptation to anyone on the frontier. The gold mining communities in Helena and other Rocky Mountain digging sites were filled with dissatisfied escapees from Her Majesty's service. Perhaps this event may have led to his moniker of Honest John. However, the nickname is probably more likely sarcastically refers to his later political career. When Constable Heron arrived at the U.S. Army post of Fort Shaw, he was greeted by the Assistant Commissioner, Colonel James McLeod. 
Heron rode with McLeod and his party back to Fort McLeod, continued on to Fort Calgary alone. He arrived around Christmas time when the buildings of the fort were still being completed. With quarters unfinished, Heron and several other policemen spent the holiday on the upper bow at the near the Morleyville mission of Reverend John McDougall. Heron would spend the next three years as a member of F Troop in Fort Calgary, in the first three years of its existence. By the spring of 1876, Heron's exemplary service had resulted in his promotion to sergeant. Rumors were emanating from south of the border at, as the U.S. Cavalry had begun its campaign against the Lakota Sioux, and offers and invitations from that band were arriving into the Blackfoot camps in Canada. At Fort Calgary, a message was received that a young Blackfoot had killed another near the forks of the Red Deer and the South Saskatchewan rivers. In response, a 10-man patrol was sent out from Calgary with Sub-Inspector Cecil Denny in command and Sergeant John Heron second in command to investigate and apprehend the suspect. Several days out of Calgary, the patrol spotted a group of Blackfoot on hundreds strong bearing down on them from the Red Deer River Valley. The patrol scout believed that the suspect was among the contingent. As the riders accelerated their ponies into the Mounties' direction, Denny anticipated a fight and ordered the men to arm their carbines and to stand six paces apart. As the ponies approached the stone-faced troopers, around 50 broke free of the group and raced forward. Heron remembered years later, I never realized a horse could come so fast. About a hundred yards from the skirmish line, the horses halted. One mounted Indian acted as a spokesman for the band and extended his hand in peace. When Inspector Denny explained what he wanted, the band turned over the, the, the murderer, a Blackfoot by the name of Nataya. Denny, Heron, and the others proceeded to hold a goodwill council with the Blackfoot in which the leaders stated that their band had received peace offerings from the Warring Sioux in Montana. There, the various Sioux bands had been reported by the U.S. government to report to their Indian agencies by January of 1876, and those who did not submit were considered by the Ulysses S. Grant administration to be hostile. In response, punitive expeditions of the cavalry were being sent out under the commands of Generals Gibbons, Terry, Crook, and a lieutenant colonel by the name of Custer. The emerging le leader, the patrol was told, was a man named Sitting Bull, who had contacted uh, Sixacot Chief Crowfoot and asked the tribe to come south and join their alliance with the Sioux and the Cheyenne to destroy the Long Knives. The policemen's hairs raised on their necks when they were told that Sitting Bull offered Crowfoot that if he assisted in destroying the army, the alliance would turn north and wipe out the Redcoats. Crowfoot rebuffed the Sioux and the police could breathe easier, knowing that the chief had replied that the police were their friends. After once again reaffirming the Blackfoot Mounted Police Alliance, this excited patrol returned to Fort Calgary. According to Heron, the police left the meeting with their prisoner at full gallop covering the first 50 miles without a stop in fear that the tribe might change their minds to recapture Nataya. As a result of Denny's report, the police strengthened their communications with the U.S. Army. Later that spring, 
The police heard the news of the tragedy at the Battle of the Little Bighorn River and of the annihilation of five companies of the 7th U.S. Cavalry under the command of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. Within a year, Sitting Bull and the amassed Sioux Nation, fleeing from a vengeful army, were camped on Canadian soil and seeking asylum from the very Redcoats that had once been threatened. As a member of the Calgary Detachment, Heron witnessed the fall from grace of the post's controversial commander and founding officer, Inspector Ephraim Brisbois. In December of 1875, Brisbois ordered three policemen to build cabins for the post's Métis interpreters. When the policemen refused, Brisbois ordered them arrested for insubordination. However, the order was not followed up. The entire division drew up a list of charges against their commander, and to add salt to the wound, Brisbois insisted on naming the post after himself and insisted that all communications be listed as originating from Fort Brisbois. Through the winter of 1875 and 76, the conditions were ripe for mutiny. Though Brisbois concerned himself gravely with the conditions of local indigenous and Métis, his lack of control over his own men attracted the attention of Assistant Commissioner Atchison Irvine. The last straw occurred when Brisbois removed an iron cooking stove from the men's quarters and put it into his own room, which he was sharing common law with a local Métis woman. Another point which irked his non-com officers. Soon Commissioner McLeod and Assistant Commissioner Irvine had the fort renamed after McLeod's ancestral home in Scotland and henceforth became known as Fort Calgary. In August 1876, an exasperated Brisbois threw up his arms and tendered his resignation, and Superintendent William Herkimer was placed in command of Fort Calgary in Brisbois' wake. During his tour of duty, Heron also spent some time at Fort McLeod, however exact dates are not absolute. However, it is certain that he was not one of the founders of the post in 1874, as has been written previously. In fact, Heron likely never even saw Fort McLeod until late in 1875. But he was present in 1877 at the historic signing of Treaty No. 7 at Blackfoot Crossing, east of Fort Calgary, along the Bow River. This is one of the most important documents in the history of Canada, Though the nation had gained title to Rupert's land by purchasing it from the Hudson's Bay Company, true control of the land depended on the satisfaction of its indigenous inhabitants. The various tribes of western Canada had began to surrender its territory, and now it was time for the Blackfoot nations, or the Blackfoot-speaking nations rather, to face the future. The whiskey trade and the disappearance of the buffalo forced tribal leavers to accept the terms for the cession of 35,000 square miles. The presence of policemen like Heron had contributed to an aura of trust that leaders like Crowfoot, Red Crow, Bullshead, Eagle Tail, Crow Eagle, and several others had for the government. Fellow troopers and officers had been called out, not just for ceremony, but to preserve the peace. An assembly of 4,800 members of the Blackfoot Confederacy and allied tribes was occurring, and a simple encampment could easily turn into a battle. 
At the ceremony, Sergeant Heron saw yet another show of force. When members of the Kainai, or the Blood Band, appeared, they were stripped, painted for war, mounted their ponies, rode to the top of the hill above the campsite. Charging down the hill, they circled the treaty tent, shrieking and shouting war cries and firing rifles into the air. But it turned out to be less a scare tactic, as it was an information for the officials and the police that these nations were still a force to be reckoned with and were to be treated as such and with respect. The incident said a lot for the Mounties in the camp because one wrong move, one false gesture, a stray shot by anyone could have turned the entire incident around into bloodshed. Those lessons learned were not forgotten by men like Heron when the troubles of the Northwest Rebellion came about in 1885. Many of the police were also there to keep an eye on the white traders who had moved into the conference to make a grab for some of the $60,000 of cash money that was being doled out. Now well experienced in the ways of the frontier, John Heron completed his duties with the force in May of 1878. Upon his honorable discharge, he returned east to Ottawa via Fort Walsh and Fort Benton, Montana, where he rode by steamboat to Bismarck, Dakota Territory, and rode home by rail travel. Upon his return to Ottawa, John Heron entered into a wholesale liquor and grocery business with a man named Thomas Bates, under the name of the firm of Heron and Bates, opened on Welling Street in Ottawa in the summer of 1878. In the fall of that year, Heron was approached by John Stewart, a Bank of Commerce accountant, who was also active as the Sergeant Major commanding the Volunteer Militia Troop of Cavalry. Stewart, at the request of the newly re-elected Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, was in the process of reorganizing the volunteer troop into a unit that would serve as an official escort for the incoming Governor General, the Marquis of Lorne, and, his, and Princess Louise, the daughter of Queen Victoria, his consort. In recognition of his recent mounted police service, John Heron was requested to act as Sergeant Major for the Guard Unit that Stuart was busy organizing. Heron consented, as did Tom Bates, on the same day, Stewart also talked to Duncan J. Campbell, a Bank of Montreal employee from St. Hilaire, Quebec. In coming years, Campbell would follow Heron and Stewart West, also all becoming leading citizens in the Fort McLeod Pincher Creek frontier. By the end of the day, Stewart had enough recruits and immediately informed Sir John A. that he was ready to assume command as captain of the Dragoon Guards. Upon the installation of of Lord Lorne as Governor General. Captain Stewart's troops were regazetted and permitted to be known as the Princess Louise Dragoon Guards. In 1878, John was married to Ida Lake, a small yet determined young woman who stood only 4 feet 11 inches and barely weighed 100 pounds. Ida hailed from Lindsay, Ontario, but the story of where and how they met was lost to time. But her spirit and single-mindedness has not gone forgotten by her family. Over the next three years, Heron ran his business and continued to perform as sergeant major at official functions in the Dragoon Guards. Providing pageantry to the parliamentary opening, state visits, and as escort to the vice-regal authority at, at any other official duty required. 
The Dragoon uniform was a stunning example of military flair consisting of a royal blue tunic, striped breeches, and a Russian, rather a Prussian-style helmet complete with spike and horsehair plume. Apparently a daguerreotype exists of Heron wearing his Dragoon uniform, but has never been found. The uniform was still in the possession of Heron's descendants, at least as of the writing of Prairie Grass to Mountain Pass in 1974. In 1881, John Heron's connections with the Conservative government clicked for him once again, when the Marcus of Lauren was sent on a tour of Western Canada. In preparation, the Mounted Police required someone to purchase and deliver 100 horses to various forts. Remembering his experience with Selby Smythe's tour, the fact that Heron was coming west anyway led him to accept the commission. Upon completion of the contract, Heron stayed in the west and entered a new business arrangement with John Stewart. In 1881, Captain Stewart made the decision to enter into the western ranching industry, now blossoming in the foothills of the District of Alberta. He selected the Northwest Mounted Police Remount Farm, south of the new settlement of Pincher Creek, as an ideal base, and persuaded Heron to go west with him and show him the ropes. After the purchase of land from the government at the, edge of, at the eastern edge of the town of Pincher Creek, the ex-Sergeant Major accepted the position as manager of the Stewart Ranch Cattle Company. In this capacity, the 27-year-old John Heron became responsible for cattle and horses ranging over a government lease of 50,000 acres. 3,000 head of cattle were trailed in from Utah. Heron was also active in the politics of stock raisers in the area, while John Stewart involved himself with mining and real estate investments in the Calgary and Banff area. Heron and Stewart's partner, ex-Hudson's Bay man and horse trader James Christie, helped to form the Southwestern Stock Growers Association. While the ranch helped to fulfill government beef contracts for the Indian Reserves and raise horses for the NWMP, Heron devoted a lot of his time to breeding Clydesdale horses and imported several stallions. He became noted for his acumen when he had over a thousand horses transported from Idaho and put them into the crow's mess past to winter, and reported to not have lost a single head. In 1882, Heron returned to Ottawa and brought Ida and their two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Georgina, back to Pincher Creek. Their trip was taken via steamboat up the Missouri to Fort Benton and via covered wagon to Pincher Creek, where they took up residence in a one-room log cabin a half-mile southeast of town. Later, they moved into a large frame house at the eastern edge of Pincher Creek, which was unfortunately demolished in 1955. In the fall of 1883, Pincher Creek settlers had their first encounter with stray cattle and their indigenous neighbors. A cowboy riding along the Kootenay River, today the Waterton River, found a, a group of field butchering a fresh, kill, freshly killed beef. Riding back to the town site with his report, the cowboy guided a group of volunteers led by John Heron in search of the perpetrators. In all, a hunting party of 14 Stonies who had drifted south were taken into custody. In McLeod, they were tried and, and a few were given sentences. 
Despite his reputation as a respected ex-police officer, militiaman, stock raiser, and budding politician, Heron retained a certain amount of blue-collar temperament. This was evidenced by one of his hobbies, the decidedly uncivilized sport of wrestling. In 1884, a match was widely advertised between John Heron and a man considered to be superior to him in height and weight. At McLeod, during the Dominion Day celebration, citizens from around the area gathered to witness the spectacle. A considerable amount of money was wagered for the event, and the larger man being the favorite, Heron was the log shot. As the two opponents stripped to the waist and stepped to the ring, a tall, lanky, young American newcomer jumped onto the platform and waved a considerable roll of money and announced it to be placed on what he called the little fellow. Some long faces may have been evident in McLeod that day as Heron won by what has been called his descendants the Wrestling Championship of the Northwest Territories. However, the champ would soon retire undefeated when his toughest opponent in intervened. Ida Lake Heron objected strongly to his sporting activity and demanded the end of his wrestling career. Devoted husband he was, Heron complied with the ban. Oh, and the mysterious young American with the bankroll? He turned out to be none other than George Lane, then on his way to take over as foreman of the Northwest Cattle Company. Lane would eventually would own the ranch and rechristen it as the Bar U and become one of the most prosperous and successful ranchers in North America. In 1884, another daughter was born to the Herons, Katie Carey, and they would receive another daughter, Edith Maud, in 1888. In 1884, Ida Lake Heron was also an early witness to the sort of fear that the entire West would experience in the next year. On a hot day in July, Ida was home with three-year-old Georgina when she looked up to see an armed warrior in paint standing in the doorway who making signs that he wanted something to eat. Ida fed the man and he left as quietly as he'd arrived without a hint of harm to the ranch wife and her child. Incidents like this would contribute to settlers' paranoia when Louis Riel returned to Canada and began to contact indigenous leaders of Alberta. In response, John Heron organized a home guard for the Pincher Creek area. The volunteer organization was soon to be absorbed into the Canadian militia as the number three troop of the Rocky Mountain Rangers in March and April of 1885. The Rangers had been formed by Captain Stewart in response to the Louis Riel and the outbreak of the Northwest Rebellion in March 26th of that year. The fear in the ranch country was that of an alliance of the Treaty Seven Nations of the Blood, Black, Stoney, Sarcy, and Pacani with the rebel Métis of Louis Riel. Blackfoot leaders like Crowfoot, Red Crow, and Sitting on an Eagle Tail were being approached by the messengers of Riel. Peace in the Calgary, Pincher Creek, and McLeod areas hinged on the neutrality of these nations. Stewart, now gazetted a major, made a hairy trip to Ottawa and back as relations between the leaders, the Métis, and the government soured, finally exploded at the Battle of Duck Lake. In response, 114 stockmen, farmers, cowboys, ex-mounties, and trappers enlisted into the Rocky Mountain Rangers. Three troops were formed at Fort McLeod with a captain assigned to command each, while Lord Richard Boyle of the Alberta Ranch and Ottawa and Ottawa 
military officer Edward Gilpin Brown took charge of number one and number two troop respectively. John Heron took the lead position of the number three troop. While eastern forces were being mobilized in the east for services at Batosh and Battleford, the Rocky Mountain Rangers fell in for roll call at the Fort McLeod garrison. After two harried weeks of drill, the RMR formed up as mounted cavalry. Number one and number two troop were sent to patrol the narrow gauge railway being built between Lethbridge and Medicine Hat and watch the Cypress Hills in the American border for hostiles headed out for the scene of the fighting. Meanwhile, Heron's number three troop settled in for itself in for an uneventful three months as his rough-hewn group of cowboys and former frontiersmen found themselves as the foothill country's ranking author military authority during the dark days of the Northwest Rebellion. Despite being located among the supposedly unsettled Blood and Pecani tribes, John Heron's rangers had little excitement. The number three troop didn't even get a chance to share in the two or three minor gun battles that some of the other rangers were involved in near Medicine Hat. Some of Major Stewart's troopers had exchanged gunfire with a few American Assiniboine, but nothing significant ever came of the incidents. One of Heron's troopers, unfortunately his name lost to time, did assist a couple of Mounties and apprehended a ring of Montana horse thieves and tracked the rustlers from Fort McLeod to the Highwood River where an arrest was made. At the end of the rebellion, Major Stewart recommended all of the Rangers to be awarded the Northwest Campaign Medal, which also made the recipient eligible for a homestead grant of 320 acres. The award was made to the reunited Rangers the following summer at the Pincher Creek Sports Day. Heron was well known and respected throughout the Alberta ranching country, both by the British and Eastern Canadian aristocrats who dominated the industry and by the settlers who were rapidly taking up homesteads in the region. In May of 1886, the region's first attempts at organizing the cattle industry, the Southwest Stock Association, gave way to the newly formed Canadian Northwest Territory Stock Association. John Heron served as delegate to the first annual general meeting in McLeod and was elected its first president. The group's function was to act as a political lobby in managing the range, organizing roundups, and attempting to force the federal government to limit the amount of rangeland being opened up to homesteaders. Under Heron, the association was able to work a good cooperative agreement with the Montana Stock Association in limiting the activities of rustlers trafficking livestock across the international boundary. As well as political activity, John Heron continued as the foreman on the Stewart Ranch. In 1888, that ranch was sold and the land and leases were divided as Major Stewart retired to Calgary, contenting himself to real estate, coal mining, and other business ventures. Finally, using his land grant from the NWMP service, Heron started his own operation and also served as government stock inspector until 1904. About that time, his younger brother Peter Heron came west and set up homestead in the Pincher Creek area. In 1892, a young Mountie came to Pincher Creek named Ed Ambrose. Uh, Heron took a liking to the lad, often inviting him to the household for dinner. A few late years later, Ambrose was courting his daughter Georgina, and in 1901, he became 
the heron's son-in-law, thereby creating a mounted police tradition in the family. The second heron daughter, Katie, also married a Mountie, John L. Jameson, in 1905, as the last daughter, Edith, married a Pincher Creek banker, George Hunter, in 1909. In 1889, oil seepages were located. Uh, it's discovery attributed to frontiersman Kootenay Brown near Cameron Creek, a stream running out of an alpine lake in the Rocky Mountains in the corner where the borders of Alberta, British Columbia, and Montana meet. A small boom ensued in the area and a number of claimants poured into the inn, coping to cash in on the burgeoning petroleum fields. Heron was in the thick of it and represented the businesses of a number of the claim holders. Based on the favorable comments of a visiting official of the Standard Oil Company, a local corporation was founded to consolidate the efforts of those seeking to exploit the resources of the seepages. It was called the Alberta Petroleum and Prospecting Company. But Heron and the others needn't have bothered as the remote location of the seepages and the relatively low volumes of oil discovered made the development unprofitable. But it was still Alberta's very first commercial oil well and certainly not the last. In 1896, the McLeod Pincher Creek area was again alarmed by indigenous problems, but this time came from not from a collective threat, but from a single blood warrior who would become a fugitive. His name was Sikotsisis, also known as Chaco, but most knew him as Charcoal. It began in October of 1896 when the warrior shot and killed his wife's lover, a medicine pipe stand after catching his friend with his wife. For six weeks, Charcoal led a reign of terror that eluded the, the Northwest Mounted Police at every turn. The chase was taken up by nearly everyone, including the police, the Blood Tribe, and the local citizens. Before the chase was over, Charcoal had shot a Blood Reserve farm instructor named McNeil and threatened several authority figures, including Agent James Wilson, and even the tribal chief, Red Crow. Charcoal fled to the Pacani Reserve and while in the area attacked the cabin of a Pacani named Commodore. When the police from Fort McLeod arrived to investigate, they were met by another police patrol from Pincher Creek, as well as a citizen's posse led by John Heron. The searchers spent the few, next few days searching the coolies for the word of Charcoal. They were assisted by his stepson, who had escaped from the outlaw, and the trail led up Tennessee Cooley and finally grew cold as the Porcupine Hills were reached. About a week later, charcoal was seen on the Cochrane Ranch on the Kootenai River, and fresh tracks were found in the foothills. Heron again volunteered his services, and a civilian party took to searching and guarding the mountain passes. When charcoal was finally spotted near the Kootenai River, the pursuit was taken up by a patrol headed by Pincher Creek Sergeant William Brock Wild. The patrol encountered charcoal a few miles from the Waterton River, or from the Kootenai River rather, and in the pursuing pursuit, the fugitive Sergeant Wild was shot and killed, and Chaco was to be blamed and charged for the crime. When the news of the killing of a mounted policeman was heard at Pincher Creek, John Heron was incensed. In the wee hours of November 11, 1896, Heron again led the call for volunteers in the manhunt. 
The posse enlisted the aid of a police, blood police scout named Tail Feathers and followed Charcoal's tracks out of the North Fork up to the Old Man River. Tracks disappeared when the heavy timber, so the posse divided its forces. While the majority of the party stayed down in the valley, three men went up on the ridge. Tail Feathers, John Thibodeau, and John Heron. The three moved over to the south branch and down the stream's path. Towards nightfall, as they climbed a small rise, Heron's party found themselves with a clear view of the valley and in the middle of an ambush. Charcoal stood across the valley from them, his Winchester leveled from behind the black horse he had taken from the slain Sergeant Wilde. Dismounting, the party took cover in the brush. A gunfight ensued, but Tail Feathers' Lee Metford rifle jammed. Heron himself got into a good covering position and with his revolver fired a volley of 12 rounds at Charcoal. But the combatants were 300 yards from each other and the fugitive escaped as the other party heard the shots and came up the valley in a vain attempt to cut the outlaw off. Extreme cold finally forced the posse to retreat to the ranch houses below, but the searches would continue together with the police. That was the last time the vengeful John Heron would get a crack at charcoal. The next day, charcoal was found at the brother of, house of his brother Left Hand, where the sibling convinced him to surrender. The police took him to Fort McLeod, where he was subsequently charged with murder, tried, and hanged at the McLeod Barracks. Herod topped his illustrious career as a member of Parliament, running for the Conservative Party and elected for the Federal Riding of Alberta in 1904. The riding at that time was in the area of one of the largest in Canada, taking in the entire area from a point north of Edmonton to the Montana boundary. Herod was only the third representative for the region, having been preceded by former whoop-up trader Donald Watson Davis and later by Edmonton Bulletin editor Frank Oliver. In 1904, the Alberta riding was divided and Oliver was delegated to the new riding of Edmonton. Subsequently, the Alberta riding was cut to the area south of the, of the Heron's candidacy and election. His staunchly conservative background was evident in a family anecdote. When Heron spoke of a distant cousin, he stated that, you know, Tom Scott is a pretty decent fellow. What I cannot understand is how he can be a grit. That means a liberal. In 1908, Heron was re-elected in the realigned, renamed riding of McLeod, sitting in the House of Commons on the side of Sir Robert Borden as a member of His Majesty's loyal opposition. As a parliamentarian, he was able to lend assistance to a local issue pertaining to his old friend, John Kootenay Brown. Brown had begun a fight to have his beloved Kootenay Lakes set aside as a national park. And to that end, he had recruited several allies, including Heron, uh, the Cowley rancher F.W. Godsell, and McLeod Gazette editor Charles Wood to put pressure on William Pierce, the superintendent of mines. In that year, in 1895, the government set aside the Kootenai Forest Reserve, and in 1901, Kootenai Brown was appointed fishery officer for that reserve. 
When Heron got into office in 1904, he was now in a position to help his old friend Brown in the request for national park status. Kootenai and Heron lobbied in Ottawa to expand the forest reserve to include an area reaching to the U.S. border and to encompass land that was unfit for agriculture. In 1909, Kootenai asked Heron to use his powers to create a position for him in response to the need for an overseer. Heron exerted influence and, and to have a forest ranger installed, and in 1910, at the age of 71, Kootenai became uh, the first forest ranger for the reserve. Brown, Heron, Godsall, other members of the community influenced and harassed the government constantly to res expand the reserve and join it with Glacier National Park as an, as an adjoining cons conservation region. Finally, in 1911, the Kootenai Forest Reserve was given park status and Waterton Lakes National Park came into existence after 16 years of fighting by Kootenai Brown and the locals. In 1911, Heron ran again for re-election with the Conservative Party on the issue of reciprocity with the United States, an early form of free trade. The Liberals of the day were for it and the Conservatives against. Heron, however, personally backed reciprocity despite his party's stand in opposition. Borden came west to campaign and stopped in McLeod to endorse Heron, but the gesture did not help and Heron was defeated by Liberal candidate David Warnick. Now Borden won the election and formed the government, but without John Heron, who was shut out and was never again able to sit in the government. In 1912, John Heron accepted an invitation from Guy Wiedek to attend the first Calgary Stampede as an honored original member of the Northwest Mounted Police. The 74s, as they were called, rode in the September 2nd, 1912 Stampede Parade in 1874 uniform in a mock replica of the wagon box boat that the police had initially crossed the Bow River in to found Fort Calgary. The veteran troop also paraded at the Stampede Grounds on horseback alongside their younger, modern counterparts of the Royal Northwest Mounted Police. In the early part of the century, many small communities popped up on the prairies as Sir Wilfrid Laurier's plan to populate the plains with farmers took root. One of these small towns emerged at High River, near High River, and was named Harrington in honor of the pioneer policeman John Harrington. In 1924, Heron made it to yet another reunion of the original policeman, this one in McLeod as the force celebrated its 50th anniversary. Perhaps it was his attendance at these sorts of functions that led family and historians to believe that he had been on the original Great March that ended with the building of McLeod. But that march had been about the only Mountie milestone that Heron had missed. As the Great Depression settled in on the prairies, the Conservatives were swept again into power and Heron's good friend, Calgary lawyer R.B. Bennett became the Prime Minister. Bennett offered John Heron a Senate seat, but he declined because of his advanced age. In an earlier time, Heron had watched as the virgin land was turned over, grass side down, as cattle country became wheat country. Like many early ranchers, he had resisted and used all of his political clout to prevent government grazing leases from being transferred to homesteads. 
With the arrival of the railroad, the ranchers' pleas were lost as farmers from around the world filled the plains. Now in the midst of the dirty 30s and the dust storms created by four poor practices, Heron probably shook his head as he saw several of the settlers' dreams dashed. In 1935, more than 60 years after arriving in the frontier, Heron sat down and submitted to an inter interview with Ada Beaton of the Lethbridge Herald. The reporter could not help but be struck by the fact that this pioneer and elder statesman of Alberta barely showed his age, and despite the fact that in his lifetime the political boundaries of the West had changed several times, and that thriving towns and cities of the province, and indeed the province itself, had not even existed at the time of his arrival. John Heron finally passed at Pincher Creek in 1936 at the age of 83. He is buried in Fairview Cemetery at Pincher Creek. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K-O-O-T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum, or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.